Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 101. It's April 10th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at InvestableWealth.com. In today's episode, I'm going to pick up where we left off and close out our three-part series on listener questions. I apologize I didn't get this out sooner. I've been really busy this week making some public appearances and, and uh, conducting some seminars. In fact, the next three or four weeks are, uh, for me are a very busy period, but I will try and do a better job than I have this week in getting you out content. I have at least one more show that I'd like to get in, and I'll probably do uh, Saturday over this weekend. It's been a show that's been developing. The thought process has, has been in my mind for a long time, and everything finally came together and gelled this week for me, and I know what format I want to put it in for you. So I'll do my best to get that released out by tomorrow afternoon. So let's pick up where we left off, and that's with a listener question about how to get started in swing trading. You know that I'm not someone that buys and holds, nor am I someone that, that day trades, but I do do what I call swing trading. That's where I generally look for short or near-term patterns. Once I've identified those patterns and then a stock or a particular industry sector that I believe will be favored by that pattern, I go ahead and I make my investment, I buy into that position, and then I see how it plays out over the next you know, two weeks to maybe three months. That's generally my holding pattern. Now, I watch that position closely every day. I have certain entry and exit strategies that are built into the plan before I open the position. And then I reevaluate every day how that position's doing, what my original thought process is, if there's new news or information, or if the stock is acting in a different way with, you know, based on its volume and its pricing action. And so I'm constantly making those assessments. Sometimes my plans change. Sometimes they remain very rigid. If the stock is performing in a manner that I like, I hold on to it. I hold it for at least another day. I want to see what's happening. On the other hand, if it's performing in such a way that, that is erratic or is out of alignment with my thought process of how it was going to react, if that changes, well, then I sell the position and I move on to something else. That's swing trading in a nutshell. Sometimes you do it and you hit big home runs. You get a 25 or 30% return. Other times, you may only make 2 or 3 or 5%. Sometimes you break even, sometimes you take a small loss. But when you do that repetitively, with a purpose, with a strategy, on a consistent basis, well, that's how you can build wealth. That's what I've done over these past 30 years. It's not a complex strategy. If it was, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'm not that smart of a guy. I do have a keen knack for identifying trends, and over the years I've learned to rein in my emotions and discipline myself. And so for those of you that want to get involved in swing trading, that's the first area you want to focus on is being disciplined, disciplining yourself. Remember, you have no control over that stock. You can come up with theories. You can come up with conjectures. You can draw charts. You can do all those kind of things. But the actual performance of that stock, whether it goes up or moves down or stays the same, that's outside of your sphere of influence. But what you can control is your emotions. You can learn to discipline yourself to be disciplined to not be too greedy, and to be disciplined to not be too fearful. Now, that ability to discipline your emotions, that'll be the topic of a future podcast. What I just described to you is kind of a, a way for you to get into swing trading, and that's, again, that's a common question that I get as people were saying, well, how do I get into swing trading? Well, I'll tell you, the, the thing you don't want to do is to jump into it with both feet when you don't know what you're doing, okay? The easiest way to lose your wealth is to get an ex-wife. The second easiest way to lose your wealth is to invest in things that you don't know anything about. So before you start swing trading, before you get into any type of active trading, make sure you have a system and that you know how to run it. 
Now, it's a really good idea to just paper trade. That's where you, you know, you write down your strategies. You say, hey, I've been looking at the price of gold. It's going down. I think commodity prices are going down. And so um, I would short commodities. But but don't go out and do that. Just write it down on paper. Look at what index fund or, or mutual fund or something that you would buy that would take advantage of a decrease in price in commodities and then then track that over the next days and weeks and you're just writing that down on scratch paper and then you come back after a month and you say hey did I make money or did I lose money you see your your paper trading you're not putting your own money at risk it's a good idea to to do that type of a strategy before you actually invest your own money there are also a lot of trading simulators out on the internet I know Investopedia offers one but if you just Google stock trading simulators you know you'll find a lot of free things you can use now you know they're like paper trading it's not going to give you an exact simulation but it's going to be very similar to what would happen if you were trading in the stock market so do these practice techniques before you do any actual swing trading and then once you do start trading with your own money don't trade all of it at once. You're not going to put all your eggs in one basket. You're not going to commit more than 10% of your portfolio to any one stock, right? You want to start slow. You want to make sure that if, that if your strategy is wrong or the market goes against you, that you're not going to get totally wiped out. Focus on those trend lines that I always talk about. 10-day moving average, 50-day moving average, 200-day moving average. If you want to start swing trading, start with a very simple premise. Build yourself a very simple model. Just do something like saying that you're going to trade on, um, you know, the 100-day the moving average. And just do that with the S&P 500. If you go back and construct a chart, looking back over the last 15 years, you know, go back to 2000 where we had the internet bubble and 2008 where we had the financial crisis, the housing bubble, and then look at where we've been the last six years. If you just took the S&P 500 and you plotted it against a simple 100-day moving average, then you could use that as a trading system. In fact, I'll do a blog post on this. I don't know if I'll be able to get around to it this week, but over the next couple of weeks, I'll do a post over on my uh, my firm's website, investablewealth.com, where I have a simple trading strategy like trading on the 100-day moving average. And if you would plot that out, you would have seen that if you would have sold the S&P 500 whenever it went below the 100-day moving average, and bought it whenever the S&P 500 index went above the 100-day moving average. Just use those, that simple strategy. Sell when it goes below it, buy when it goes above it. Then you would have found that you would have avoided the major calamities of the Internet bubble, of the housing bubble, financial crisis of 2008. And you would also find that it isn't like you'd be you know, having to day trade or trade on a daily basis. I don't have that full chart up in front of me, but I'm just I'm looking at uh, at just a quick one I drew here. Just going back to the the financial crisis of 2008, and and again I I'm looking at a real quick spreadsheet that I just pulled up here, so it it may not have the definite numbers on it, but it's pretty darn close. If you were trading on a 100-day moving average, you would have sold out of the S&P 500 sometime around maybe a May or June of 2007. That's when it would have broken, you know, pretty hard below the the 100-day moving average. And again, I'm looking here real quickly, so I may not be 100% accurate because I'm just looking at a quick chart that I pulled up here. But and, and I'm doing some extrapolation. But it looks like looking at a 100-day moving average of the S&P 500, the S&P 500 broke its 100-day moving average sometime um, mid 2007, and it did not rise above that 100-day moving average until. It looks like 
2009. So if you'd have followed this strategy, you'd have gotten out of the S&P 500 in early 2007. You'd have missed almost all of that 48% drop and you wouldn't have gotten back in until sometime in 2009. And then you could have held that position until about the summer of 2010 when it again broke below its 100-day moving average. And then pretty much you'd have stayed out of the market for five or six months. You'd have gotten back in for a good percentage of uh, early part of 2011 and then gotten back out and not gotten back in until about mid-2012. And then it was a little iffy there the end of 2012. But you know what? From about October or so of 2012, it doesn't look like, and again, I'm, I'm doing this on a rudimentary chart, so it's not 100% accurate, but it doesn't look like the S&P 500 broke below its 100-day moving average until about the summer of 2014. So you could have ridden, you know, what is that, a year and a half or something? You could have ridden out in the S&P 500, never having to have made a trade, knowing that you're in the market, it's above its 100-day moving average, and things are going fine. And then once again, once we got into that mid-2014, it started getting chopped again over these last, these last eight months. But that's just a really simple illustration of how using the 100-day moving average could have helped you avoid major calamities in the stock market. And you don't have to be Einstein or a physicist to figure that out. Now, it's not fail-safe, it's not risk-free, but it's a whole lot better than simply buying and holding. So that's what I would encourage you to do. Don't listen to these talking heads on TV. Think for yourself. Develop your own strategies. Okay, we're going to wrap up the podcast. We're down to our last two questions. I'm going to get through these ones quickly. Um, this next one is, you know, how do I save for college? How do I save for my kid's college? I get that question from a lot of people. Um, recently, I got it from uh, a listener named John. He has three kids, uh, ages, I think, around uh, 8 to 12, you know, young kids in that age frame. But I get this all the time about saving for college education. Let me say this simply, and I've said it before. As a parent, you're not responsible to 100% fund your kid's education. Now, when I say that, I don't mean the government's responsible. I mean the kids are responsible. As a parent, you have certain responsibilities to your kid, but you don't have to guarantee to put them through college, buy all their books, buy all their room and board, you know, and fund their whole education. What you do have a responsibility for is taking care of yourself in your old age. You should be saving for your retirement first. You should be putting as much money away as you can into your tax-advantaged accounts, things like your 401k, your Roth IRA, and your traditional IRA accounts. Those are the things that are going to allow your money to grow in investments tax-free, and it's going to be there available to you when you're 70 and 80 years old. Now, once you've done that, if you have money to be able to put aside for your kid's education, then you should do that. But I would encourage you, and you have to do this, you have to start when your kids are young, you set the expectation for them that they're putting themselves through school, that they're going to be funding their own education. And when they have that kind of mindset growing up, they'll be saving their money, they'll be getting part-time jobs, they'll be working when they're teenagers, when they're in high school, they'll be, they'll be uh, thinking about college, they'll be looking for colleges that are more affordable. When they do go to college, they'll be real selective in the dorms that they move into. They'll be selective in, in the textbooks they buy. They'll be watching their money very tightly because it's going to be their money. They're going to spend a whole lot less of their money on an education than they're going to spend of your money on their education. And obviously, you can't just throw the burden on your kid. I mean, they're, they're, they're just kids. They're 18 years old. They're not going to make good decisions. You have to help them along. You have to help them with the savings. You have to help them to have the motivation and the ability to get jobs when they're little kids. You have to teach them to save. You have to help them select universities that are going to 
not only provide them with a valuable education in a field that's going to help them to get a job or to create their own company, but also schools that are not going to charge them confiscatory sums of money. You know, I feel sorry for those of you that live in the East Coast. I mean, even your state schools are just out of out of sight. Um, if I lived in the Northeast, I would send my kids to school in North Dakota or somewhere where it's affordable. That you know, that may not be glamorous. It may not be exciting to uh, to be going to North Dakota State and studying engineering. But I promise you, if you send your kid to a state school like you know North Dakota State and they study uh, electrical engineering, they're going to get out of there. They're only going to be paying you know six thousand dollars a year. Intuition. I mean, even if you factor in out of state and stuff, or they get there and they apply for residency, if their if their grades are anywhere near good enough, in most cases, if you go to a school like you know something out of the way like North Dakota State, they're going to offer you in-state tuition just to attract smart kids. If you graduate from a school like that with an engineering degree, yeah, you're not going to make as much as the guy that comes out of Stanford, but you're also not going to come out with you know two hundred thousand dollars in student loans. You're going to make a good income and you're going to be debt free. And that's a fine place to get an education. I've got a son, one of, you know, one of my own kids. He went to a little school in, in Idaho. He was very interested and very passionate about geology. He did very well when he was there. He got involved with professors that were, you know, helping him with his career and helping him to, to do research papers and submit his, his, his work to, uh, you know, to scientific journals and things and participating in conferences and conventions. So his undergraduate degree was very affordable. He was able to graduate in less than four years. He funded almost all of it out of his own pocket. I kicked in one semester out of the entire time he was in school. You know, he picked up his own room and board and everything. He was able to come out of that little school in, in Idaho that almost no one has ever heard of. And he was able to get a scholarship to go on to a major university and get a full ride scholarship for his master's degree. He'll be graduating this year. He's going to come out with his first job out of college, and he's going to be making more than the average, you know, 50-year-old American, and he's only, you know, in his 20s. And he did that by going to just a, a, you know, a little school in Idaho where the tuition was, you know, just a couple thousand dollars a semester. So those opportunities are out there. You've got to help your kid pick what's best for them. These high cost universities, these kids going into, into a debt, 50, $100,000, the over $1 trillion in student loan debt, that is the biggest scam of our lifetime. It's a huge political football, and you're going to see either one or both of these political parties trying to make hay out of it. They're going to try and offer more free education and try and uh, do more student loan forgiveness just so they can buy votes. But the way you can build your own wealth is by not getting caught up in it. Teach your kids a discipline. Teach them how to work. Teach them how to find value. They want to do that throughout their life. A good way to have them learn that is when they save up for their own college education and they pick an affordable school to go to. Okay, last thing and then we'll wrap it up. I get a lot of questions on people that want to know about self-directed IRAs. And these are not self-directed like where you um, you just roll your 401k plan over into a brokerage account at Charles Schwab or something. Uh, the self-directed IRA that people are talking about, this is where you kind of create like your own LLC. Uh, your money is outside of normal investments. It's an alternative investment. You can use that to uh, to invest in a small business or different things like that. I don't have a lot of knowledge in that. I'm just going to tell you the little bit I know from experience of seeing other people. It doesn't work for most people. Now, it can work for you if you, you've created some kind of a company that you're going to sell that and, and uh, have shares of it where you're going to make a, a big payday someday. I mean, Mitt Romney did this with his IRA. That's why he you know is able to have billions in his IRA. But you're not Mitt Romney, right? That's not going to happen to you. 
If you're talking about just having twenty or $30,000 in an IRA and you're trying to put that into some self-directed thing because you think you're going to get over in the government and being out and be able to hide um, you know, your, your purchases of gold or silver, or you think you're going to be able to do some kind of a, a big tax avoidance and invest it into your business. I, you know, I just, I haven't seen people pull that off. I've seen people try it. The people that I've seen that have done that and invested in precious metals, well, you know, they bought all that gold and silver in 2011 when it was sky high and they've, they've lost 30, 40% of their money there. Um, I just think there's better ways to shelter your money. I think there's ways that involve less paperwork. I think there's ways that involve less likelihood that you're going to get audited from the IRS or that you're going to have to have all this paperwork you have to fill out and submit. I mean, if you're seeing a late night show where someone's telling you you can do that to get rich quick or, um, you know, someone wants to charge a thousand bucks to set it up. I've never done it, but from people I've met that have done it, it doesn't look like it's a successful process to really get a good one that I think is going to hold up against the IRS. Um, you know, you're probably talking about four or five thousand dollars from a competent attorney. That's if you want to set this up. If let's just say you're in a corporate America, you've got a nice chunk of money in your in your 401k. You want to um, take early retirement, or you get laid off in corporate America. You want to roll that over into something where you can buy a franchise or something. You want to go out and buy a, a Dunkin' Donuts franchise, and so you you want to set up this self-directed IRA to do that. And you go out and you pay an attorney you know, $4,000 to set all that up and you buy your Dunkin' Donuts and you issue stock and then you buy it through your self-directed IRA. Yeah, that's possible. I've seen that work with some people. But you know, there's other funding mechanisms. Again, I think there's easier ways to do it. As I always talk about, I'm a simple guy. I do simple strategies. I do simple processes to make my life uncomplicated. So I wouldn't choose to do it that way. I didn't choose to do it that way when I set up my own business. I mean, if you want to do that, I would just really do a lot of homework. Make sure you have enough money to make it worthwhile. If you're just talking about a few thousand dollars or even, you know, a few ten or twenty thousand dollars, it's probably not worth it. Save yourself the headache. Just invest your money in a traditional fashion. I think that's the best information I can give you. And hey, let me wrap up this podcast by, first of all, thanking you for all the questions you sent in. As you know, I can't answer everybody's individually, but I do appreciate that. You can always send me your questions at our website, investablewealth.com. Don't forget, if you want to be involved in the giveaway where we have these seven books we're giving away, go ahead and leave us a review over at iTunes and then get in touch with me through, through wealthsteading.com. I'll put you in that drawing. We'll do that drawing on April 15th. I also want you to remember that in this podcast, I can't give you specific advice. I'm never offering recommendations. I'm just putting out this information for informational purposes. I want to help you not only build your wealth and build your personal freedom, but I want to teach you how to think on your own. Thanks for listening. Until our next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.